Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the third in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Later in this episode, we'll speak to broadcaster Aideen Gormley, host of RTE Lyric FM's Movies and Musicals and Sunday Matinee, who will take us through some of her favourite film scores. But first, unless you've been living on Mars, you'll know the hugely popular 12-part adaptation of Sally Rooney's best-selling novel Normal People, directed by Lenny Abrahamson and Hetty MacDonald, is currently screening on RTE, BBC and Hulu. The stunning music which accompanies the series was written by award-winning composer Stephen Rennix, and I'm delighted that Stephen joins us now on the show. Stephen, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Stephen. We'll come to normal people in a little bit, but I expect you're bowled over by the reaction to it so far. Yeah, it's tricky in the sense that I suppose I finished delivering cues for it, and literally on the day that uh, our glorious Taoiseach brought in the the COVID restrictions. So I arrived home at nine o'clock and my partner, she told me that uh, Leo had made the announcement. So I immediately went back to the studio to take all of the expensive guitars and hard disks home again because I had no idea how long I was going to be out of the studio. So I'd been working on it for the last eight months, pretty much. And so it meant that when I'd finished, I kind of turned off all media, turned off the phones, did all that stuff. And turned on the phones again, I realized that things had taken off. But it's, it's, it's a strange one. You know, I, the last, one of the last things I did with, with Lenny was a film called, called The Little Stranger, which was, I think, one of the best things we've ever done together. But it, got, it was horribly released as a, a kind of genre horror film, which it, it never was and did very little. But the film itself is absolutely stunning. And so it's an interesting thing that happens when you release something gets released and it then gets huge success it, it it feels it feels removed in some way kind of hard to explain it's it, success is much easier to deal with than not success in a way when you do the work the work is done after that it goes out it, into the world and how well it does feels slightly removed from you but you're glad because a lot of people get get to see it the success of normal people is just phenomenal and it's going to be used i suspect as a cultural reference i suspect the characters will be people will refer to somebody as being a bit of a connell or a bit of a marianne but it's just uh, to work on it was incredible because it as i work over and over scenes over and over again and just the standard of acting and directing and writing and lighting and everything it was just it was a joy from that point of view to be doing scenes over and over again that are so you know even the early edits the early assemblies were of, of an incredibly high standard. So it's, it's great that it is getting the success that it absolutely deserves. It's not always the way in this business, you know. Just to go back to something you mentioned there, at the time of recording this, we're three weeks into the transmission of the show, but you mentioned that you're working on the score up until mid-March. Do timelines always run that late when you're looking to finish off the mix for a score? It has happened before. TV less so. I've done less TV than I've done cinema. But I remember on another one of Lenny's, which did very well, was Room. I mean, we had so little time on that. I had seven weeks from seeing the first assembly of that to delivering because it had got into Telluride, which meant that there was a very definite finishing date. It had been planned. There'd been, there was a plan for it to have a longer post 
period, but then it, it got squeezed. So that got, that was very, very tight. That was down to the last few hours. And it's, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world to have a very tight schedule like that. I like it when you have to have a, a delivery date because increasingly there is this thing now which they refer to soft lock. It used to be pictures would be locked. That would be it. And there would be a definite delivery date. When there isn't a definite delivery date nowadays, it's easy to go back into the pictures, start changing the pictures, or not easy, but easier than, than it used to be. Which means if you change the pictures and there's a, you know, there's a scene where there's music with that, then the mu- you can go back and change the music and everything changes again. I like a very definite delivery date. I found over the years that if, uh, you know, you can end up polishing and polishing and polishing. And in my experience, things rarely actually improve was composing for film something that you always saw yourself doing or was it something that kind of evolved? Because I know you were, if my research is correct, that you used to be part of a punk band. So it, it kind of feels like quite a, a big evolution, if you like, to becoming a, a film composer. Yeah, I, I, I had never intended to become a film composer. And I even say that was the case probably 15 years ago. I, I, I had played in a punk band, but I didn't want to be playing in a punk band either. I I'd always wanted to make film and to direct and write and do all those things. And that's how I started out. I'd originally studied architecture, but left after a couple of years. And, and music was an incidental thing, which I was kind of able to do. And I suppose able to, years ago, make a few quid out of. And then it just, it got to the stage where it was, a, it was the other thing that I did when I was trying to write and try and get projects off the ground to direct. I just kept going from one job to the next and then it just became bigger and bigger to the extent that it's all I was doing. But it was never, it was never something I intended. It was never something that I thought I had the skill to do. So it's just, it's just, I've kind of ended up here incredibly lucky. And I feel, you know, there's a lot of people who want to do what I do for, for parents who are looking for guidance for their kids to do what I do. I, I just go, it's very hard. There is no career path. I can tell my career path, but that's not a, it's not a, a recommended one because I think filmmaking is like that. I think people, the people who make films are often people who come from disparate areas and end up wanting to express themselves in different ways. I know like Lenny's background, for example, is, is you know, it's very, it ends up in a way that the best way for Lenny to express his artistic side is through film. Or, or at least it's maybe it's not the best one, but certainly the most successful one to date. And I think for me, it's very similar. I just found something which fitted. I do see myself less as being a composer and more of a filmmaker. That's how I see it. And it's how I try to approach it as well. Now, other people probably think that's nonsense, but it helps me when I'm doing a scene that I'm not concerned about the music. It just happens to be the element that I can bring to it. But actually, what I'm concerned about is the arc of the scene or the arc, you know, how, how it works. So really, I, I, the punk thing is a bit of a red herring in the sense that it was, I, whenever I was on stage with bands, I hated every moment of it. Performing was never my forte at all. You were clearly somebody who watched films when you were growing up. So I wonder what filmmakers and then by extension, what composers had the greatest impact on you? I would say... I remember as a kid being exposed to a lot of those films from the, from the golden age of Hollywood, a lot of musicals, a lot of Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, where the music was just such a huge part of it. Now, I never liked them because I always kind of, it was, it was like that thing where everybody knows the words and the dance steps and they all break into it. Kind of re, the realism part for me was missing in that. But the sheer productions, the quality of the music, I had never heard anything like that. 
And there was always something about those Hollywood musicals, which I found very, I was all the time trying to work out how they were doing it the nuts and bolts of it, the engineering of it. Was there an orchestra playing when they danced? Were they doing it to playback? Even like, I remember very being quite young and wondering about those things. I suppose the films that had a huge effect on me would have been films like, you know, that you'd discover on BBC Two or something as a, as a, as a kid. Nicholas Roeg films had a particular flavor to them that I just found incredibly interesting a silence and a stillness and a and a str- you know strangeness the actual photography of them they were they seem to be the very opposite of the Hollywood thing that I was talking about before and they intrigued me cinematically and with those I think the use of music in Nick Roeg's films is a very is very limited I don't remember any of that I beyond that then I would say you know Sergio Leone's films with, with uh, Morricone's music and Fellini, when I got a bit older and I was hanging around with Len and we started looking at Italian films, we were looking at Fellini and, and Nina wrote his music, all of that. I was much more interested in a way in European film and European music than I probably was in the American thing as I got older. And then had a, I suppose, in my early 20s, there was that whole love affair that people have with Scorsese films and that kind of American muscular macho thing which has now completely left me and I kind of can't watch those films anymore I I find them really very boring I found them they've aged badly for me you know I'm interested to know at what point you would come on board in relation to a project so for example a project like Room would you read the source material or do you purely just rely on the visuals as they start to come through with Room I didn't read the book. Uh, I, if I can, if there is an, an adaptation, I always read the screenplay because that's going to be the thing that's going to be, it's like that's my first contact point. With normal people, I had read the book before I knew Lenny was going to do anything with it. It's, it's, it's a real luxury to be asked to do something quite early on, you know, if you know you're on it before it's, it's being shot because you just want to, like almost everything that Lenny has done apart from Room I would have been on set. I would have tried to just get as much of a sense of the finished thing from a very early stage as possible, even to meet the actors, even to somehow breathe in the atmosphere. Because I think anything you can, which is going to help you, anything that gives you a clue of what the music to this world that somebody is trying to make should be, is you take anything you can get. And, and I think quite rarely would I, I don't know if I've ever got a finished cut before I would start putting music on it. Normally it's a relationship, like when I'm not working with Lenny and with other directors, I think Paddy Brannock is, Paddy is very involved as well, but there would be some directors who would be quite hands off and would send you the stuff and, and, and you would respond to it for, you know, from when they have quite an early assembly. It just depends. It depends on how directors like to work. It depends on every project is, is different, you know? And I suppose it's easy to think I think it's often assumed that people are much more in control of a production than they actually are. It's, it, it's amazing that more films don't fall apart halfway through. So there's always a kind of trying to work out what this particular flavor of a project it is, what particular beast it is. And, and you often think, well, if I know what it is, I can do what I did before. But actually, nothing is ever the same. You know, unless it's, if there's people out there doing genre stuff, then it's fine because, you know, you're just going to put genre music on it. But I've been very lucky to work film, which is much more interesting. And it's what that's the thing which gets my juices flowing in a way is when something doesn't fit into some 
genre because I'm not, I don't have a sound. I don't have, a, I, I tend to just try and work out what the music would be, not impose my style of music on something. I, mean, I, I kind of think I do have a style. If I had to say what it was, it would be somewhere around maybe what Richard did. But, you know, it, it really is about engaging with, with, with the material. And I think stuff that's very good always has that feeling around it, that the director, that the actors, that the producers are trying to find out what this project is, what the best shape of this material is, rather than imposing some preconceived idea. If you have a preconceived idea about what the film is, it's, it's a bit like, you know, getting out the colours and colouring in, in it in a coloring book you're just trying to make a script a little bit more vivid but actually i think something should change between the script and the finished film i think that's the stuff that's exciting so that you know there's something in it but you're not quite sure what it is and so the music is trying to do the same thing trying to it's almost like when you see it you want to be slightly surprised at, at the very end when you see it at a premiere or something that you're kind of slightly surprised by what it is as well and hoping it's hoping it's good rather than crap you know um, what you're saying there, when you refer to yourself earlier on as a filmmaker, and I think that that gets to the heart of it, in that it's it's an incredibly collaborative process. More often than not, will a director kind of give you carte blanche in relation to something, or will they come to you and say, "I have a feeling." So, for example, with normal people, Lenny didn't come and say, "I've got a real kind of rock feeling for this," and you were like, "Oh, well, I was coming at it from a completely different point of view." <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just, like I said before, it it really depends on the director, and you know, I mean, something like. The film that I did with Lenny Frank, that was very different because we had to, some of the music in the film had to exist before we even shot it. So our interactions through that were, were you know, we had a long time in pre-production to work on that stuff. And then in post-production, it was more the score stuff, but that was, it was, that was a very different, that was a very different thing to almost anything else we've done. But it's difficult, you know, sometimes it depends on if, if, if there's a very tight schedule, sometimes you don't have the room to, to try an awful lot of different things. You have to, uh, you can rule out things uh, that it's not going to be. And, and, and sometimes you wonder, could it be orchestral? Could it be this? If it's orchestral, that means you've got a plan for being orchestral. So on The Little Stranger, we always knew it was going to be orchestral. So we had to build that into the schedule that we were going to write the music. Then we were going to have to go and record it and do all that. I just did a film before Christmas, a Canadian film uh, called Death of a Ladies' Man with Gabriel Byrne in it and directed by this man called Matthew Bissonnette. And he was just incredibly open and uh, trusting and in a way turned it over to me. And there's a real, you know, that can be quite frightening too because, you know, he had, he, you know, he felt he was sending me a lovely letter asking me to do it and all that, you know, and, and said he had such respect and you kind of go, oh God, no, somebody who really respects me. How am I going to possibly <laughs> manage that? I'm going to let them, it's inevitable, I'm going to let them down, they're going to hate me. It's like, you know. So you go through all of those things and you, in a way, what happens then is you do your very best because you don't want to let somebody down. And that was just lucky, you know, I, I, I watched an early assembly of the film, I had certain ideas. It's, it's a very interesting film because it's got, I think, seven or eight Leonard Cohen songs in it. Uh, so I, I had to kind of connect, be the connective tissue in a way between all of these various Leonard Cohen songs. And, and that was really interesting. And I think, we've, I think what we ended up with was something really nice, but very different. He was in Canada. So we, only, we met briefly when they'd finished shooting here. 
And then everything after that was just talking, chatting, sending stuff, him sending stuff back. But every project is different. And sometimes you feel you kind of have to slightly hold a director's hand or in a way, if I felt that I was going to be bullied or have a director impose their idea hugely on me, I probably wouldn't do the job kind of think this isn't going to be a collaboration this is going to be them telling me what to do and the way you want to then turn around and go well look why don't you do it yourself why don't you if you've got such strong ideas about the music then i'm probably not the right person for this job i'm not the right fit you know and that's if if, if you can if you're lucky enough to be in a position where you can choose a bit the work you want to do or the people you want to work with it's it's fantastic so i suppose if i can i would i choose to work with people who who I feel there's going to be a conversation and an openness around the music mm-hmm. and hoping that I can bring something which they maybe didn't ever really think about. Do you put yourself in the place of the audience to a certain extent or is that not useful or do you just really kind of focus on the piece without trying to anticipate how people might react to it? But I am the audience in a way and I suppose I have to assume that I have, I suppose I have to take the role of being an everyman I, I think when you work really well on something, when the process works really well, I think it's a very straight relationship between me and what I'm seeing and how I think what what's what's going on in the scene. What is the what is the thing that some sense so if you're writing a piece of score which has to do a bit of work, which has to under underline some emotional beat or some plot point, that's very different. That's nuts and bolts. That's that's the, that's easy when you're trying to somehow help perhaps the interior of a character or the memory of something in the past or something which is going to be useful later, that's more difficult because that I think is very subjective. And in a way you have to assume that my subjectivity can be extended into being appreciated by a more general audience. And I, and I suppose the only way to, to know if that works is that you get, keep getting asked to do work because it works at some level. I think, you know, a lot of it is just having the nerve to do it. It's having the nerve to go, well, I'm going to show you what music I'd have here. This is what this scene means to me. This is how I think putting just a single held violin here or a, some, you know, to do something which is slightly unexpected, what that does. But it's such, you know, there's so many collaborators now, you know, producers have opinions on music and directors and editors so there is a very collaborative thing and it goes through, so I might be the initial, you know, I might be the originator of a, of, a, of a piece of music, but it goes through lots of levels of people having an input into it. You've worked primarily in film that you haven't done as much TV. I'm just thinking that there's, there's obviously a much longer time period and a longer arc to consider in relation to a TV show in a case like Normal People, which goes on for six weeks or is, is 12 part. What are the different considerations for you or are there any different considerations in between composing for tv and composing for film my experience of it has been i've done a few series a few tv series before and firstly on on, certainly on on stuff on on material that a lot of investors in so i suppose the more investors in normal people's or funders maybe is a better way of putting it uh normal people it was hulu and it was bbc they all have opinions so uh, that is you know and there'll be execs in there will have opinions and there might be i i'm i was certainly a normal people i was protected from a lot of that i think by lenny and catherine mcgee the, the producer it's a consideration because it is a different even on normal people like there was different cuts there was the 30s minute cuts and i think now there's the, i think there's other going to be other cuts which are 45 and it's more closer i suppose writing advertising music in a way and and it is so on normal people yeah there was 12 half-hour episodes 
I know in some episodes there's maybe only one or two cues that I wrote that ended up in there, but I would have I would have maybe written five or six. Some of those would have been replaced by commercial tracks because again, that's a consideration now in TV. It's to get the soundtrack, it's to get the Spotify playlist, it's to get all of that. I resist that as much as possible in that I, you know, it's my job to kind of go, let's just make it score, let's just make it score. And then somebody else is going, let's just make it all tracks. Let's get no score. And it meets somewhere in the middle. Yeah, certainly in a, in a series, it's, it's rare that you would have the first, the first two episodes, I think are, there might be only one or two licensed tracks in it. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's quite rare. There are those considerations. So it's a, you know, it's a balance between licensed tracks, score, and I think the score gets pushed, gets squeezed there in a way. Film is different, you know, uh, certainly independent film and independent film where they can't afford to buy in tracks. The music, I think, is more homogenized and is the sound, you, you're trying to get to the sound of the world that's contained in this, this 90 minutes of distraction. And I think the score plays a, a different role in TV in this discrete 30 minutes, which might include a couple of ad breaks and then a few tracks. But it doesn't mean that the process of actually the actual writing for a scene is different. I'm still trying to enhance, hint at, do something within the drama and the story. But, 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 but there is, you know, there's, there's, there's practical things. There's different delivery dates. There's different processes it has to go through in terms of mixing and, and, and things like that. And it's, you know, I suppose I wrote maybe 60 cues, maybe more, 70 cues over. And that's an awful lot. You know, you would never, you'd never do that in a, in, for a, a feature film. Specifically in relation to Normal People, which I've had on repeat for the past week, it has this beautiful, light and delicate, almost dreamlike element to it. And I'm thinking specifically of the pieces Villa Arrival and Much Prettier Girls in School. And I was just wondering, what were the visual clues or elements that you pulled out to create that atmosphere with the music? You just have an intuition or an instinct. And I suppose it's me remembering those times the kind of intimacy between somebody who, yeah, you know, in, in, in I think the cue is Connell and his friend arriving. They've been interrailing or something like that. And I think they arrive. And there was just something that I, you know, I did that. I was that guy at some stage of my life. And there is a lightness that the normal people, there's a lot of lightness in it, but there's a lot of, you know, it's about anxiety, depression. There, are, There's a lot of things in there which Lenny dealt with in this beautiful way without focusing on them. So, I think similarly, the music has to contain that possibility that there is a kind of darkness there, but without there being, it still is a love story about these two people who have this incredible connection, which may, which will probably last a lifetime. They might end up with different people, who knows, but there's always going to be this connection. So for me, that's a very positive thing. And for me, that lightness, a kind of mild euphoria, a sense of remembering days, summer days as a kid, when just the day seemed to stretch out and was filled with possibility and those there's an aching beauty to the thing between Marianne and Connell that I wanted the music to somehow mirror or reflect actually that the music shouldn't get in the way of it that's that's the big thing I have to try and not mess it up that the music has to be this I don't know it's almost like the music that they might hear in their heads or whatever best way to explain it is to play the music when yeah. I try and put words on it that's when you run into trouble very quickly but there was a, a sense of breath being the only thing our next breath or the current breath we have is the only thing we can be sure of in a way and that somehow this was such an essential this is such an elemental thing their first really moving touching somebody or whatever that there was something that just seemed to be essential about it 
And that essential for me, I would be playing around with lots of different sounds and I'd eventually discover some sound that I just felt for whatever reason seemed to be appropriate, seemed to have something in it. And then I will turn it into a piece of music. And then I would fly it off to Len and Nathan and see what they think and it would come back and it would go back through this process. But the sounds, it's about discovering the sounds that seem to be from that world and those scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, of, that's often the very difficult, that's the very difficult part because you start off with nothing mm-hmm. and you have to create something. Conscious that people are still watching the show, so I don't want to give away too many spoilers. Um, and obviously, a couple of the scenes have gotten a lot more inten- attention in Ireland that we would have necessarily thought. I was just wondering, were there any parts of the series that were particularly challenging or that needed that extra little bit of tooling just to make sure they were just right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say everything, everything. It was a very intense period of work. The first two episodes, two or three episodes were very difficult. I mean, I, difficult in the sense that I think I did about 12 or 13 deliveries, as in 12 or 13 passes of the music. And then once it went on, I was down to maybe three or four, or in some cases, one or two. It, 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 it's establishing that world. So that the opening, the introduction to these characters, the first, you know, them in school, that transition from being school kids into being young adults, how that was handled by the direction that's a really intense part of it because that's what you're, you know, you're bringing people in from having their tea to sitting down and watching this series, which everybody's talking about. And you have to, it's, you know, the first five or 10 minutes of episode one has to do so much work. So the music there was, was, was really important. And, and all through episode one and all through episode two, as it went on, there were scenes, there were some scenes that were very, very, look, every minute, every single minute of, the 12 episodes was has been beautifully sculpted and um, honed with that's what that's what Lenny Lenny does and and I suppose there's no cue that didn't have every bit of attention that it deserved but you know there's the scene that I think it's I'm not sure which episode it's the first time the first time they have they have sex and and the music through that scene was very important to get it right because it's you know it's a really beautiful amazing scene but yet, you know it's going to get a certain amount of attention from people who see it as being something other than that. So you have to avoid certain things. And again, you have to try and get into the interior of it, the interior of just not spoiling it, but driving. Because the music still has to drive it on. It's a long scene. I think it's about four minutes long. So it has to do work in just not getting bored by this or wanting to look away. You want to keep looking at it. And I suppose that was, that was one of the more difficult ones to get right. But, but it's sometimes the very small, you know, the, the opening scene when Marianne is sitting in her kitchen at home eating ice cream. To get the music, the very first cue, to get that right was very difficult because you have to not notice it, but you have to feel it. You have to feel that something, there's something between these two. Uh, you know, there's lots of conventional ways of doing it, but sometimes the conventional ways of doing it do a disservice to the, you, you, you want to not be conventional. You want to really enhance not you know draw people into this world and and so people aren't thinking oh it's just another love story between a couple of kids it isn't that so you've said that your next project is death of a lady's man you've wrapped on that you've finished that yeah no that's done that that was i finished that before christmas uh, i'm not sure what's happening with that and there's another film that i worked on called beards an irish independent film which is fantastic then there's another feature film the name may have changed on it so i'm not going to say what it is and then there's a couple of upcoming projects, but it's 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 you know it's a strange time for everybody involved in in filmmaking because so many projects have been just 
halted uh, and people don't know if they're going to be going back on or when they're going to be going back on. So it's a, it's, um, it's a peculiar time, you know. Stephen Mannix, thanks very much. Thanks, Stephen. The highlight of many people's weekends are the two weekly shows that Aideen Gormley presents on RT Lyric FM. On Saturdays from 1 to 4, you can hear the very best songs and scores from the movies on Movies and Musicals, whereas on Sunday, in the same slot, there's always a wonderful selection of classical music on her Sunday matinee show. And I'm very excited that Aideen has moved to the other side of the desk to join us on the iFi podcast. Aideen, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here. We're all staying at home. I guess you're finding music even more of a companion than normal. Definitely. Um, listening to quite a bit of music. I mean, watching a lot of films as well, <laughs> has to be said. Um, but yeah, in terms of what I'm listening to, a lot of background music, nothing very challenging, Stephen, I find at the moment. Um, a lot of jazz piano. I love Dave Grusin, Keith Jarrett, Brad Meldow, those kind of very easy listening piano. I, I just love at the moment and, and always do actually at any time. They're the kind of scores that have on or CDs that have on in the background. Not a lot of vocals. Sometimes to cheer me up, I will put on, you know, Stevie Wonder's greatest hits. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a bit of Stevie Wonder in your life. And it also reminds me of one of the last big arena concerts I went to last summer when we were allowed to do that. So a bit of Stevie Wonder in the mix. I mean, there'll obviously be a bit of classical and a few movie scores in the mix there too. But um, leave, leaving it outside of, of my usuals, they're generally what I would go to, I think. I love that you, you live with your own incidental music. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and speaking of movies, you just mentioned there that you're watching a lot of movies. What are your kind of your go-to watches? Are you a, a rom-com person? Are you a thriller? Are you a horror person? Where, where do you go? I've been watching a lot of the black and whites. Actually, I've been going going back to some of the favorites. I love a bit of Hitchcock. You know, it's it's such escapism. I watched Rear Window again the other night. I just enjoyed it so much because it's so theatrical. Really, it happens in such a small space with Jimmy Stewart and, and, and Grace mm. Kelly. Just, just maybe, maybe it's because we are all looking out windows at our neighbours. <laughs> maybe it struck a chord. But yeah, the old black and whites, Rebecca is a big, a big favourite. So a lot of Hitchcock, actually. And after that, you know, I did find when lockdown started, I needed more episodes of things. You know, I was on Netflix more so watching. I, I, ha- I was catching up a lot, actually, because I was a bit late coming to Netflix. I was watching the Renee Zellweger What If. I watched Hollywood over a few nights the other night. And I, I, it's almost like my reading as well hasn't been great. I've been good at reading articles as opposed to books. And I found episodes as opposed to full films for a while. Isn't it funny? But um, I'm getting more into, into the full films now again. But back to the classics. Yeah, a little bit of when Harry met Sally and a rom-com too. I don't want anything too heavy. I'm not going to sit down and watch Psycho or Joker or something at the moment. <laughs> it would be too much. <laughs> We're going to talk about some of your favourite musical scores, but I just wonder, are there any certain pieces that you go back to if you're feeling in a, in a certain kind of mood? Are there any kind of film scores that are your touch points at any time? 
Yeah, I find in terms of sort of chilling out, I Gabriella Red's music really beautiful. I mean, going back to um, everyone of, of roughly my age will remember Betty Blue. Um, as, I know my CD was just worn out. Loving that at the moment for its calmness. Also his score for The English Patient, for which he won an Oscar for Best Original Score. I, I adore that, that soundtrack as well. John Barry's Out of Africa. They're for my sort of, you know, in need of some calm. I love Thomas Newman's scoring of, of American Beauty. I love as well, just because he's that composer that went away from the orchestra and, you know, used a lot of percussion and piano and strings. And again, it's, it's very easy to have fun in the background. It's a lovely score. When it comes to cheering myself up, Stephen, I, I tend to go to musicals and I'm finding great joy in Mary Poppins Returns at the moment. I seem to just put it on and I seem to be playing it a lot on the radio. It has that feel-good factor. And not just for the songs, but also for the score. Mark Shaman, who wrote the original score, it's absolutely lush and beautiful. And it's incredibly clever because if you listen closely to the score, and you have to remember it was Oscar-nominated this year for Best Original Score as well as for one of the songs, which is quite something for a Disney movie because usually they hone in on the songs but the score I would urge anyone to just listen to the original score for Mary Poppins Returns he beautifully goes back to Richard and Robert Sherman's original Mary Poppins and you'll be listening to some of the score and suddenly you'll hear a little theme of Spoonful of Sugar or Let's Go Fly a Kite and he'll just weave those in really beautifully nodding to the previous film and um, it's a joy to listen to yeah I've been loving it. I was, I was nervous about Mary Poppins Returns because I loved the original, but the whole thing about it was it wasn't a remake, it was a follow-on, which I thought was really clever. I thought they cast it magnificently. Mm. I mean, Emily Bond was extraordinary too. You know, no pressure following on from Julie Andrews. <laughs> but yeah, musically, they just got it right. They, they tipped their heads to the original and, and brought us something new, and I think the songs are absolutely gorgeous. I think they did a great job. Yeah, it was really joyous, really joyous. You've interviewed a lot of famous people down through the years. Who's the one that stands out for you most? Um, I've loved the, the public interviews I've done with the Dublin Film Festival, and to say they've been such a joy. Um, Julie Andrews, and then followed by Angela Lansbury. And, and but Julie Andrews was just a bit of a dream come true. I'd, I'd interviewed her once on Lyric, but it was uh, a link to LA when the first uh, part of her memoir came out. And just it was just the excitement in the Board Gosh Energy Theatre that afternoon when she walked out, because she's just this figure of you know, Maria from The Sound of Music, she's your Mary Poppins. She, she was such a childhood figure for people. And, you know, the best guests, they know how to perform. They turn to the audience and they tell the story that the audience wants to hear. Um, she, she couldn't have been nicer. Um, there was dinner that evening and anecdotes and stories. And then Angela Lansbury was very, very different. She was, um, you know, she came in the front door, put it that way, of Board Gosh Energy Theatre, <laughs> none of you, you know, in the back and secret or anything else. She was very emotional, actually, with the feedback she got from the audience and the applause. And you could see that she adored reminiscing about her career. And she was, she was just a joy. So th th those two are hugely enjoyable. There have been a lot of film score composers uh, along the way also. Um, and I love to be talking to composers about how they do what they do. Yeah. So that's a, a lovely part of my job, yeah. We're going to talk about four pieces that you've especially chosen for us today. And I'm guessing the, the first one is from John Williams. And I'm guessing um, that this one had a huge kind of impact on you when you were younger. Um, the Flying Team from E.T. This was a big childhood movie for me. I mean, John Williams is an extraordinary composer. And, and sometimes I think that, you know, it will be attached to childhood memories for a lot of people. Even the younger generation now will be thinking of Harry Potter. But for my generation, it would have been 
going in and, and hearing the music for Star Wars, um, Indiana Jones, the Raiders March, obviously Jaws years back. I, I think it's easy to forget E.T. and it made a big impact on me because it's that film. I just remember every minute of the day, if you like. I remember I was 10, I went in on the bus into the Adelphi Cinema that is no more, which makes me sound like I'm about 100. That's cinema that is no more. But I remember just being glued to it. I remember buying a poster of E.T. outside that they must have been selling. I remember going back on the bus with my best friend, looking up at the sky all the way home and just thinking this could be, yeah, there's an E.T. I'm going to meet an E.T. someday. I just thought it was an extraordinary magical film. And with the music, like Spielberg and John Williams, obviously they have an incredibly successful collaboration together and they trust one another implicitly. But I love that Spielberg adores going into the studio when the orchestra is recording. Mm. And he sometimes brings his camera himself and, and loves to get, he must have extraordinary footage actually of John Williams and orchestras through the years. But I watched a while back, John Williams was receiving an, a Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Film Institute. And Spielberg was on stage talking about him. But to show what John Williams does, he showed the scene in E.T. when Elliot and E.T. are on the bike and suddenly it takes flight. And he showed it without music. And it's, it, it actually is a bit of a non-event. It's really funny. It just was, <laughs> oh, yeah. And then he put with it John Williams's music and you nearly burst into tears. You know, and not, not, and you know, people will some, sometimes say, oh, John Williams, he tells you how to feel or, you know, he pushes it too much. I don't think so. I think he creates absolute magic. I think the way he builds the music up until till the, the, the bicycle, you know, lifts from the earth, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. And it's also a beautiful piece to hear played live by an orchestra. I think it's, it's one, of my, one of my favorites without a doubt. I came to the piece of music first. I remember listening to the music and it was such a beautiful piece of music. And then incredibly, when you see the film, it's even heightened even more. It's just, I suppose it's one of those scenes that really encapsulates the joy of going to the cinema. It does. And it's an interesting point as well about when a soundtrack can stand alone, you know, that as a listening experience, as opposed to it being that it only works with the visuals of the film. John Williams' scores always work on their own in terms of playing them in your headphones. I mean, it's interesting. I remember reading that Hans Zimmer, when he released um, his score for Interstellar, he purposely released it two weeks after the film was released. And as someone who likes to have the new releases the weekend, uh, you know, to play them the weekend they're released, I was really annoyed. I was like, why can't I get Hans Zimmer's you know, latest score? And Hans Zimmer said, you know, the normal form is you release the soundtrack, two weeks before the movie comes out. But he said, this time I'm not going to do that. I'm going to release it two weeks after the movie comes out because I want the majority of people to hear the music for the first time with the film. I want them to go and hear it on big speakers. <laughs> this was his thing. And he went on saying, you know, I don't want them to hear it on their little computer speakers. It's not why I get up in the morning. And, it, you know, it is that point, should a film score stand alone? Of course, its primary purpose is to work with the visuals, but it's an added bonus when it's a piece of music music that stands alone. And to go back to, to the score for E.T., you can listen to that full score from beginning to end, and it all works either with or without the film. 
And just speaking of John Williams, and, and funny, Hans Zimmer is a really good example as well. You look at, at John Williams, and you, you've mentioned a, a few of his films there, but his versatility is incredible insofar as the different types of films. I mean, we know him from the adventure films like Jurassic Park and from Indiana Jones, but his work on Schindler's List and films like Amistad, you know, The Witches of Eastwick, it's just, it's beautiful. It's extraordinary, and I, I, I wish he'd actually write more choral music. I think him to the fallen from Saving Private Ryan. I think Duel of the Fates, you know, from Star Wars Episode One. He's he's a brilliant choral um, master of choral work as well. I love when he throws a little curveball like Catch Me If You Can, which is this yeah. 50s jazz score. I remember when that came out going, John Williams wrote that? <laughs> like it wasn't him at all, we thought. And so, you know, he, as you say, he can write the big action scores, the Supermans, the Star Wars, the Raiders, but, but then he can absolutely make you cry with E.T. or, or Schindler's List. And he, he also... He's very into his musicians, um, the, the big orchestral sound, but then he, he'll use a violinist like Itzhak Perlman regularly or Yo-Yo Ma or um, Memories of a Geisha, for example. And um, he, he knows his musicians and he, he knows that, that the big orchestral sound is generally what works for him. And I think he's also a master of the sequel. If you think of all of the sequels for the Star Wars movies he's written, the sequels for the Harry Potters he's worked on, uh, the sequels for the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies, that's not easy. You know, it's not easy to come to a sequel and to give us new themes, but to give us the little bits of music that we still need to hear for us to feel comfortable that this is the score we want to hear. Um, I think he's a real master at that. I think he quite enjoys it. When he wrote the final score for the, the last uh, Star Wars movie, he was interviewed quite a bit about this is your final Star Wars score. And he says he, he enjoyed every minute of, of scoring every movie. It, was, it never sounded like it was tedious. Oh, I have to do another Star Wars movie. It, it seems to be joyous for him to create something new every time but a nod to the previous themes as well as you mentioned john williams has a very long-standing um relationship with steven spielberg often composers go back and work with directors we were just speaking with steven rennix who obviously has long-standing collaborations with lenny abramson and paddy bratna your next choice dario marianelli has worked with joe wright a number of times including on pride and prejudice and anna karenina but he won an oscar for his work on atonement which starred Keira knightley james mcavoy and sir sharonan and you've been lucky enough to meet and speak with him yeah, I, I adored the score. And, you know, there is an Irish link here because I, I only realized this when I went to, to chat with him. Darry Marinelli worked with Paddy Brannock on I Went Down. He scored I Went Down. And it was one of these early scores. And I remember meeting Paddy Brannock at some point and him saying, oh, yeah, did you ever talk to Darry Marinelli? So there is an Irish link there. And so he came over here and, and a concert of his music with the RT Concert Orchestra. Yeah, he, he, as you say, a, a great sort of collaboration. Joe Wright and himself, uh, they basically work together all the time. And Atonement is, is a great idea, or sorry, a great example, rather, of that relationship between the director and the composer. I interviewed Joe Wright at the time Atonement opened as well, and I was speaking to him initially about the typewriter. If you remember the typewriter at the beginning of, of the soundtrack, apparently the typewriter on the score was Joe Wright's idea. But then when it came to the epic piece of the movie when we see the, the beach at Dunkirk and the hundreds and thousands of soldiers. Apparently Joe Wright, the director, just wanted a choir, just choir, that's all he wanted. And Dario said, I think I can do something more with this. So he went off and he basically said it was like when he went to college and studied counterpoint, that he left the choir in, but he wrote a piece of music around it. So a sort of a, a, a tune around which you write other lines. And the choral piece was a Hubert Parry hymn entitled Dear, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, which he then created into an elegy. And 
you know, there are examples in the past. I suppose the, the most famous is Bernard Herrmann saying to Hitchcock, I, I have music for your shower scene. And Hitchcock saying, I don't want music for the shower scene. And Herrmann going ahead and thankfully writing the music <laughs> for the shower scene. But this is what happened here. Dario just went, went off and said, no, I, I think I can do something else apart from just choir. And he brought what he did with this music around the choral piece uh, back to Joe Wright. And of course, Joe Wright said, okay, I, I absolutely love it. And what I love about it is it's a most beautiful piece of music, but it could have gone into major sentimentality and it doesn't. It is moving and it's emotional, but it's perfectly judged. And, you know, that scene anyway was just taken in one shot by Joe Wright. And with this piece of music, it's moving. It's just a masterpiece. And it's it's no wonder that Dario Marinelli won the, the Oscar that year for Best Original Score, which was richly deserved. So from one Oscar winner to another, and actually to this year's incumbent, uh, Hilda Guthnerdotter, she had a hell of a 2019-2020. She won the Emmy for her work on Chernobyl, and then basically hoovered up every single award there was going for Joker. Um, she became only the third woman to win Best Original Score at the Oscars, and the first ever person from Iceland to win an Oscar. Like the film, it's a very dark piece of, of work. What drew, what drew you to it? I was thrilled, first of all, to see a woman in there, and I hope you'll see more of them. But um, Hildur is a cellist, um, worked a little bit as well as he, with um, Johan Johansson, the late great Johan Johansson on Mary Magdalene and Sicario. And as you mentioned, that then Chernobyl was a hit for her this last year as well. But I just felt her, her cello score was a perfect match for Joker. Again, sort of supporting the, the visuals and the dark, menacing world of Gotham and the inner emotions of the title character, but without ever overwhelming what we were seeing on screen. But again, um, what's interesting about this one for me is that she scored the film ahead of it being shot. So she was inspired by the script and then she would write pieces and she would send them on to director Todd Phillips. So it's an interesting, I mean, it's not, this is not the first time this has happened. Ennio Morricone, um, working with Sergio Leone on the Spaghetti Westerns, used to write the music ahead of time. Uh, Tom Tick for Unperfume, the story of a murderer and Cloud Atlas wrote a lot of the music beforehand. It can happen, but... I do think it's interesting when a composer, you know, writes from, from the script. And I, I came across a really interesting article in, the, jo in uh, the Guardian about her. And she wrote that the Joker screenplay just hit her so hard. She said, I've never been as struck as I was with this. I just really felt strongly for Arthur. Todd Phillips had asked her to start composing purely from the script months before the cameras started rolling. So she sat with her cello for a while, finally landing on a note that felt right for Arthur. It was almost, she said, like it punched me in the chest when she found this note. And then the physical reaction, this movement happened because I had found his voice, found what he wanted to say. And the piece, Stephen, from this, I, I wanted to pick out, was entitled um, Bathroom Dance because it's a particular scene, if you've seen the movie, where 
Arthur turns into the Joker, basically. He's been out on this murder spree and he ends up that he retreats to this bathroom. And apparently he and Todd Phillips were sort of trying to work out what will we, what will we do here? Um, and Todd Phillips played part of Hilda's score. And as he played it, Joaquin Phoenix just started moving, almost an interpretive dance. But it was her score that inspired what happened on screen. And I think that's incredibly powerful that a composer can have such an input and such a reaction from an actor and a director. So I can't wait to see what she does now. As a piece of music, it's 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 incredible because you feel pity for the character. It's kind of very melancholy, but it's also very disturbing at the same time. So she manages to wrap all of these different emotions into just a single piece of music. Yeah, she really does. And again, I mean, going back to what we were talking about earlier about does her score stand alone? I, I don't find it particularly a soundtrack that I want to sit down and listen to from beginning to end. But in terms of what it does while you're watching that film, it is an example of a score that it works so well within the film um, because a lot of it was, you know, inspired the film, literally. That, that's how it worked. So I think she's really talented and, and um, I'm really happy she had such success last year. She deserved it. We couldn't talk about movie music without mentioning a musical and you've picked out uh, one of my favourites, certainly West Side Story, uh, composed by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim, who recently celebrated his 90th birthday. It's a story that's very familiar to many of us. Obviously, it's based on Shakespeare's uh, Romeo and Juliet. But as a musical, it's, it's quite diverse because you have jazz influences, you have music coming in from Puerto Rico. You've even got a comedy sketch with G. Officer Krupke. It's a brilliant body of work. It really is. And as you say, we're talking about two geniuses here, you know, Leonard Bernstein's music, Stephen Sondheim's lyrics. I mean, Stephen Sondheim, as you say, his 90th recently, I so enjoyed putting together a celebratory programme because to say I'm a fan is an understatement. I just I just adore his musical so much. But just as a lyricist here in the early part of his career, it's so interesting the way they matched, you know, music and lyrics so well here. For me, you know, what makes a musical work? what makes the, the best musicals is that, that idea that you're longing for the next song. You just can't wait for the next song to happen. That's just a really, really good sign for me. And also it's quite a rare thing, actually, Stephen, that you have a musical that doesn't have a dud number. It, mm. You know, usually there's one number and you remember as a kid, she started fidgeting or if you're an adult, she'll go and put the kettle on or, you know, <laughs> there might just be a lull. There might just be one number that doesn't work, but West Side Story works from beginning to end. Obviously there's huge emotion in it and, you know, you have to mention the choreography as well from Jerome Robbins, which is huge in it. But it's the rhythms, oh, the rhythms that Leonard Bernstein creates um, are just so stunning. And the story is so emotional. As you say, there's there's humour there, but it's generally so emotional and, you know, unusual for a musical. I mean, there are more of them now, but to have a, a sad ending. Um, mm. it, it, it happened with something like Fiddler on the Roof and people were wondering, is this going to work? There's a sad ending. You know, musicals are meant to be all happy. Uh, but, it, but it's not. 
and I'm I'm intrigued as to what Steven Spielberg is, is going to do with it. Well, it's it's done now. It's meant to be out December 18th, and we'll we'll see. We'll hopefully see it in the cinema. Yeah, I I, I adore the original, and um, the, I mean the only thing about the remake is that the original the, the singing voices were dubbed. Marnie Nixon for for Natalie Wood and Richard uh, Jim Bryant for for Richard Boehmer. So in some ways, if you know, the, the singing will be done by the actors in Steven Spielberg's version. I, I welcome that. And, you know, I always think, that what's the point in doing a remake if you're not going to bring something new to it or do something with it? And yet you don't want it messed with, you know, that kind of way. And I, from what I've seen, I don't think he's messing with it. And I think it might be quite authentic. And look, just to sit and, and hear the music will be a joy, I think, anyway. The song that you've picked out for us um, comes quite early in the show. It's Maria. I suppose the, the name kind of gives it away, but it is sort of like, it's sung like a hymn to a certain extent. It's an incredibly soft, beautiful song. Yeah, and it is just that melody, isn't it, Maria? Even even the word without putting music to it, it's almost like a, it has music in it anyway. It's, it's the most beautiful song and it's, I suppose, such a romantic part of the movie where we see the, the, the two fall in love, Romeo and Juliet style. It's literally the, the balcony scene. You just, the, the early signs that they're, they're falling for one another. So look, there is, uh, I'd happily have any song, Stephen, from uh, West Side Story, but let, let's go with me. A huge thank you to both Aideen Gormley and Stephen Rennix for joining us on the podcast this week. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the iFi podcast wherever you get your content. We'll be back next Friday. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The IFI is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.